hopefully you'll be remembering next week what this week is about. Well, start reading the Bible from the very start or even from the New Testament. It won't be very long before you come across a list of names. And we call these genealogies. These list of names are a great frustration for, for some of us who believe that we really ought to read all of the Bible. And they lend a great deal of support to the critics who say that the Bible is boring and why should we read it at all? Of course, these genealogies had a great significance to the Jewish people because what they could do is then connect uh, their lives uh, and be proud of the fact that they are connected as God's special people. They could go back to Abraham and see how they connect in in terms of their families because it was Abraham who God chose to make an agreement, a covenant with And so they could show that they had a special place in God's purposes and God's plans. But many today, even the commentators, um, don't give a lot of space for a genealogy that we're going to look at today in Genesis 5. In fact, this genealogy, a lot of them just see as a connecting link between the story of Cain and Abel and the story of Noah and the flood merely viewed as a bridge. And um, that is certainly true. This genealogy does form a link between those stories. But I think it is much more significant than just that. Uh, It ought not to be downplayed. And for those who just like to read the New Testament, of course, we can... Point them to the scripture in, that Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture, which is in those days was a lot of the Old Testament, all the Old Testament, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training a person in the way of righteousness. So this particular part of God's word is very relevant to us today. And... What we often don't appreciate is how the whole book is put together, where it fits uh, a genealogy such as this in Genesis 5 into the scheme of the book of Genesis. Well, while Genesis has 50 chapters, in fact, it might be seen that it has 10 divisions. And those divisions are clearly marked in this way, that, that the words, these are the generations, this is the offspring. Or this is the account. And so after the first chapter, which describes the creation of the world and everything in it, uh, then we start in 2-4. This, this is the generations of heaven and earth. And then the next division is this, what we're reading in chapter 5, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 8. These are the generations of Adam. And then from there, it's 6-9 to 9-1, Noah, the tenth generation from Adam, talks about uh, the account of of Noah. And then from there, Noah's sons in in chapter 10 and 11. In 11, the offspring of of one of Noah's sons, Shem. And then it moves into the offspring of Terah, which takes a significant 15 chapters, which really is the story of Abraham. Abraham, one of the the great patriarchs, and then, of course, uh, there's a little point about one of Abraham's sons, 
which is Ishmael in chapter 25, and then another big section on the son of Abraham, Isaac. These are the generations of Isaac uh, for 10 chapters, and then another little interlude, the offspring of Esau, um, and then uh, finally the last uh, 13 chapters, the offspring of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the great patriarchs of Israel. And so we're going to read now uh, Genesis 5, and I'm going to go through to chapter 6, which forms this part of this section, this important section, uh, the offspring of Adam. I'm reading the ESV. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, Male and female he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he had fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan had lived after he fathered Mahalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalel lived after he'd fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalel were 895 years and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he'd fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he'd fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham and Japheth. And when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. 
The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Let's just pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the reading that we've just heard. Now we ask that you would instruct us and help us to understand uh, this, the truths contained in it, that we may apply your word into our lives, that we may indeed follow your ways and be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the challenge here is to work out what is the main idea, what is the main thought in this passage. The author is conveying some truths and there are many things we could draw out of it, but there is at least one main thing. Uh, What could it be? And then when we've worked out that, we need to ask, well, how can we live in the light of that? How, How do we apply this into our lives? And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to seek to draw out some facts from the passage that stand out. There are four I've drawn out and then work out the main thing. And the main thing should be the main thing, not get sidetracked onto tangents, the background or the other facts, interesting points on the way. Let's work on the main thing and then apply it into our lives. And so as we look at this passage, what do we see? What do we see? Well, I'll tell you, we see at least two opposing themes, two Uh, facts that stand out. Did you notice that uh, when there's a a person mentioned that they have a son or they have a particular uh, person following on in their likeness and uh, Adam had Seth. Of course, there was Cain and Abel, but Seth is the one that is mentioned. But then it goes on, they have other sons and daughters And again and again and again we read that, don't we? That's really good, isn't it? Everybody's having babies. It's terrific. Everyone's having big families and everyone's having babies. It's fantastic. And you might think it's a long time before they start having babies, but they live a long time too. So... You not only see your children grow up, but you see your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-great-grandchildren grow up. What's the latest news? Oh, Mrs Methuselah's having another baby. It's about the 14th. Wow. (laughs) You know, you can imagine it's a bit sort of like that, a bit exciting. Another one to add to the birthday list. Another grandchild or great-grandchild. When I went over to Adelaide to pastor a church over there, the average age of the church, and there was no children, was about 75. And we were the youngest, Julie and I, and 
our, our son Matthew were the youngest there. Well, it was a little bit sad because a lot of people felt that the church didn't have a lot of future. There were no babies. But about five or six years later, we, we saw some families come. In fact, we saw some families with some older children and then we saw some families with younger children and a couple of those families even had babies. Well, it just changed the whole complexion of the church. There was a bit of excitement. There was a bit of movement that the church actually had a future. And so it was exciting times. You can imagine back in these times in, from Genesis 5 where we're reading that there's a bit of excitement, that everyone's having babies and it's good and it's, it's fulfilling what God had said to Adam in, in the early days. Given this command, this mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's what we should do, friends. Have babies. We can get excited about that, can't we? Well, as well as that sort of theme, did you notice something else going on in Genesis 5? Everybody is dying. It's quite the opposite of giving life and seeing life. It's a counter thing. Everyone is dying. Nearly every entry that person dies. And it's a sad reality, reflecting on the fact that sin, going against God, has entered into the world and the way things are. That this came, this warning came to the first man, that don't disobey God, don't seek after independence, don't seek to reject God and fellowship with God, otherwise it will lead to death. And that's what happens. We see here Adam, the man that God created from the beginning, died. And every man afterwards dies, except there's one exception, of course. And this is really not just about physical death. It's about spiritual death as well. Man is a physical and spiritual being. God put his spirit into Adam and Eve. And God then says in chapter 6, at the start there in this section, God's spirit will not contend with man. God's spirit will not uh, strive against man forever. And his days will be 120 or thereabouts. In fact, if you Google how long people live in Australia, the longest is about 112. If you Google the stats in the world, the longest is about 120 or pretty close to it in the world. If you want to know where they are, they're in either Italy or Japan. Everyone is dying. And that's a big theme in this book. But I think it's sort of part of the background because there's someone different, isn't there? And his name is Enoch. We see this standout person. He lived differently from others. They don't have a comment about how the others lived. They just had other sons and daughters. But Enoch had other sons and daughters, but he also walked with God. He also lived differently. 
And he, secondly, he didn't die. Did you notice that? He was translated. He was taken away because he walked with God. And it seems he just started walking from his home and as he got closer and closer to God, he found himself in God's home. And he did not see death. And another fact about Enoch, it's while we might say, oh, gee, that'd be great to live to 969 or 930 years. Imagine all the things we'd learn and know about. But long life is not such, such a big thing. Like it, it could be seen as a blessing. But Enoch only had a relatively short life. He only had 365 years. But that doesn't seem a bad thing in the scheme of it because he walked with God and God took him and he did not face the horror of dying. God's spirit was not contending with him and striving with him. And so we're reminded that while there are babies born and there's life being given, life does not last eternally. The reason is we understand God's purposes and plans that God pronounced a judgment. And this judgment came that because you rejected me and my ways, dust you are and dust you'll return to be. And as a result, there is suffering, there is pain, there is hardship and eventually there is death. And yet here is a man way back then who learnt this secret to walk with God. And that shows us the possibility that there is a possibility of life without that dying as such. Then, fourthly, we see in this genealogy also a lot of repetition. There is a certain momentum all the time that life goes on, it's sort of a relentless repetition, looking at all these names. The same pattern is repeated again and again, the same formula used again and again. And you can't read it without noticing that with the march of time, the succession of generations, the inevitability of death, it's sort of going on again and again. And it brings me, at least so forcibly, to think about that life is a bit like that. It's like being processed in some big machine, some mindless machine, that to live in this world, we're caught up in something that we can't control. There's a certain mechanisms and certain processes, certain forces which are beyond my control, which move me from the cradle, as it were, to the grave, that life grinds on from day to day in certain recurring patterns. We get up in the morning and there are the dishes again. There is the washing again. There are the chores again. And our lives are being shaped by certain forces that we're powerless to control. On the one hand, we're made in the image of God and we have great potential and we can use our minds and we can use our talents to do many good things and and bless many people in doing those things. We can do much good and bring many blessings and reflect his image in doing those good things. But on the other hand, we all experience the result of the curse and the result of rebellion and not worshipping and honouring God as he deserves. And so be surrounded by the evidence of love and yet surrounded by the fact that 
we live in these times where we're moving to this result and we can't help it. We just, we're powerless. We're caught up in it. We can't extract sin out of our lives. And we stand in God's sight and are made aware of that as we gaze upon God's face. And the challenges for some of us are just to get through the day, are just to get through the next day or the week or the month or this time where we're suffering day by day. And as I look on this passage, I see that I think about we may just have a sort of fairly narrow perspective on life just like that, that each day goes on and it's hard to cope with life in, in certain circumstances, in certain ways. We can have that view. That's a view without sort of thinking too much about God. But I think Enoch had a broader view as well as understanding the, the situation, the days he lived in that he looked at the potential blessing of walking with God and he sought God out with all his heart and mind and strength. And while we see this recurring pattern and we see how bad things got, every inclination, every thought of man was intent on evil, of going against God's purposes and God's plans, and yet here is a man who realised while that's going on, he can find blessing and find hope in walking with God. And so, friends, here we are. We come to examine this passage. And what do you think is the main point? Well, I think it's this. I think that we ought to be seeking to do that as Enoch did. We ought to see the potential in our own lives to walk with God. And God, the truth is that God is not far away from any one of us. He's not far away if we want to seek him and find him. And so now we've examined that passage. And if we accept that that's the main point, the question is for you and I, how can we do that? How can we find, how can we sort of picture that? And how can we act upon it to walk with God in our lives? Well, I want to suggest there are four aspects again here. And when you just think about walking with God, wouldn't you say it denotes some sort of close affection, some close fellowship? The word I want to say is love. And, you know, walking with God denotes that sort of love, that sort of affection, that sort of devotion. Now, in the Bible, very few people are described in this way. Enoch is one, and we see that Noah is one. And I think Adam, uh, as we read those first uh, couple of chapters, Adam uh, was there in fellowship with God from the beginning. And, and to other uh, men, God called Abraham, for example, and he said, walk before me and be blameless. Now, I think there's a difference between walking before and walking in something and walking with God. And let me just explain that. And King David, for example, is one who loved God and he was a man after God's own heart, it's said of him. And King David wrote in Psalm 116, I love the Lord. Why? Why did David love the Lord? Well, then he goes on to say, because 
he hears my voice. When I speak to him, he hears and listens to me. He inclines his ear to me. And therefore, says David, I'll call on him as long as I live. And he goes on later in that psalm to say that he has delivered David from his soul from death and his eyes from tears and his feet from falling. And I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Walking before the Lord is, I think, synonymous with God is watching us and God, and, and there's a, an obedience, there's a recognition that God, uh, we're seeking to please God. But there's a subtle difference uh, between walking in the way or walking before God and walking with God. Walking, of course, is, is a term that we might say is just living life. How do we live life walking with God? Psalm 1 starts, Blessed is the man who walks, what? Not in the way of the wicked, in the counsel of the wicked. So there's a way you can walk in the counsel of the wicked. But what does this blessed man do? Well, he delights in God's law. and So he keeps God's commands and he meditates on them day and night, walking in view of God's law. But to walk together is, is more than that. There's a sort of, there's a connection. There's a close, very intimate sort of connection. And I think it helps if we think about love can be a simple love, like a love of a child. Child loves their parents, their father, their mother, because why? The parent provides that security. The parent provides everything the child needs. The child may want a lot of things, but they provide the essential things. And it's not quite the same with grandma and grandpa. Oh, they, they do wonderful things, but it's a very different sort of thing. I love my mummy. I love my daddy. That's a simple love. But the love that God wants us to do is a love that honours him above all other loves. And that's shown, for example, in the way Abraham was tested. Remember that story in Genesis 22? God spoke to Abraham a number of times and this time he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. And you've got to remember that Abraham had waited a long time and this was his whole life was tied up to his son. And here's God saying to him, take your son, the son whom you love. Take him up on the mountain, I'll show you, and sacrifice him like the pagans do. Sacrifice him. And Abraham did what God said he would do. And when he got him up there and he bound him up and he laid him there to be sacrificed and lifted up his hand, God said, stop. And what did God say then? God said, don't you lay a hand on the boy. Don't you do anything to him. Because I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your son, your only son. Now that word fear could be also put in another way, that you've not You've loved your son, the son you love, but you love me more. That now you, not only the word is fear, but you love me. 
fearing God is, is, is a way of saying a total respect, a total honouring of God, a complete sense of recognising God and who he is. He deserves all the honour and respect. Fear the Lord, that's the beginning of wisdom. And, it, and, it, and it's what Enoch had in terms of walking with God, I think. He had that desire to please God. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 11. Uh, you know, he pleased God. By faith, Enoch was taken up, so he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him now before he was taken. He was commended of having pleased God. Some years back, uh, people would comment to me about my mum and dad. And my mum and dad would drive down in their old car down to Tatura from where they were living in the uh, Durangal retirement village and they'd drive down into downtown Tatura, down Hogan Street and they'd stop and they'd get out and they'd walk down the street. And their favourite little place was the cafe there where they'd have a pot of tea and dad would like his vanilla slice. And people would say to me, oh, I saw your mum and dad. What was it that they noticed about my mum and dad? Well, this is two old couple in their 80s and they're walking along together, hand in hand. And they just said, it's just such a lovely sight. And that's really what we can sort of picture here that Enoch walked with God and had such a devotion to God that he'd put God first and whatever was testing, he would always put God first. And that's a possibility for us too, you know, that we love God more than we love anything else. Well, it's good to love your wife. I tell my wife I love her. She tells me the same thing. But we love God. We love God. We should love God. And it's difficult because when we start to walk with God, we find that he's already outstripped us in his love. He loves us so much. And many of us know that we can find many loves. We want to love our car. We want to love our house. We want to love our children. We want to love a holiday. And we might seek after all these things. And it's good perhaps to have those things. But love for God should come first. And that's what Enoch did in walking with God. The second thing is faith. And we don't have to look far in the New Testament to find about a chapter 11 about the heroes of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It gives that definition there in, in the start of Hebrews 11. And before long after we've got, to, we've got talked about Seth, all of a sudden the writer's talking about Enoch. Enoch had faith, it says. The comment is made that it's a faith that not only believes that God exists, but God rewards those who seek after him. God rewards those who trust him. That's faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Enoch pleased God. But how did Enoch learn to trust God that way? It wasn't just a simple faith. It was 
no doubt, a tested faith. Well, perhaps we look in Genesis 5 to think about the clues. How did Enoch learn that? Well, Enoch lived knowing all the forefathers. Enoch was born when Adam was only 622. And when Adam died, Enoch had been walking with God 243 years. And the other sons and daughters born to Adam and Seth and Enosh and Kenan, Mahalel and Jared obviously had those opportunities too, but Enoch took hold of what he'd learnt way back when he was a child, no doubt. And he saw the difference when others wanted to live life their own way to living life as he thought about it, God's way. And he might have started asking questions. What, what was it like, Adam, to walk with God? And, and he saw what one way led to and what the other way led to and he decided... He decided in his heart that he would give, he would put his faith or trust in God and live that way. And perhaps even seeing the consequences of sin, that he outlasted Adam. Adam died. And that was 57 years before he was taken by God. And so he walked by faith. He disciplined himself more and more as life went on. And the writer to the Hebrews goes on and says, well, you know, this is what we should understand. Earthly fathers discipline their children, and that's pretty good. We realise that they disciplined us and we respected them for it. Shall we not much more subject ourselves to the Father of spirits and live, the writer says. They just disciplined us for a short time, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. And with faith, of course, another thing goes with obedience. Trust and obey. There's no other way, the old hymn writer said, than to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And we know Enoch was a man of faith and he obeyed. Uh, And in fact, in Jude, that uh, the half-brother of Jesus, that, that short little book before Revelation, we know... There Jude was speaking about Enoch, the seventh generation from Adam, and saying that the consequence of the deeds, he was warning people, he was preaching to people the consequences of their deeds of ungodliness, that God would bring judgment. And therefore he is telling them that they, they needed to repent of that and stop rejecting God's ways. And there was an obvious trend in Enoch's day as men took wives and had children An obvious decline in a rejecting of God. Every intention of their hearts became evil. So much so. um, And and it was was pretty obvious. And so there's, there's a need to not only trust God, but also to obey. And again, we see that this can be a simple thing, but also a tested thing. We think of our children, they love you, yes. Uh, They trust you, yes. But do they obey you? Hmm. Well, of course, there's always the naughty corner or or go to your room in the hope that they will stop their rebellion and listen to you and obey you. 
And one of the sad stories in the Bible, of course, is the one who didn't obey, the king that didn't obey, was King Saul. When God told him specifically, go and meet the enemy and do this. And what did Saul do? But he got attracted by the booty. And in order to cover that up, he decided that he'd do a bit of a sacrifice sort of ritual. And as the prophet Samuel come back, he says, what's this I hear? What have you done? Don't you know to obey is better than sacrifice? And to listen to God is better than looking at all the blood of your sacrifices. That is something needed if we're going to walk with God. We need to listen to his commands and obey him and trust him when he tells us to follow his ways. And that finally brings me to the last point, that Enoch was, wasn't just loving God with all his heart and trusting him and obeying him, but he was listening to him and talking with him. He was communing. He was relating all the time with God. And to walk with God denotes that, obviously. And we might just think of the great occasions when God sort of communed with some people in the Old Testament. God talked with Moses and after the golden calf and the, and the terrible um, idolatry of, of all of Israel, God says, I want to wipe them all out and start again. I'll start with you, Moses. And Moses interceded for Israel and he said, look, if you wipe them all out, what are all the other nations going to say about you? He says, don't do that. In other words, perhaps they can learn to obey. And God saw, agreed to that. 40 days in rebellion, so they'll have 40 years in the wilderness. And then God said, well, look, I'm not going to really go with you. Perhaps the angel will go with you, but I'm not going to go with you because these people are so stiff-necked and rebellious. And Moses said, no, no, if you don't go with us, then we're not going anywhere. Just kill me now. And God said, all right. I'll pass by and show you my glory and I'll, you'll be my spokesman and I will go with you in that situation. Or think of Abraham and God there is looking on Sodom and Gomorrah and he'd come down to see the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah and shall we tell Abraham what we're going to do? Of course, yeah, let's, let's talk to Abraham about this. And so they said, you know, Abraham, this is what's going to happen. We see this wickedness going on all, all through Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham sort of thinks, he says, well, are you going to wipe them all out? What if there's 50 righteous people there? Oh, yeah, well, I won't wipe them out, says God. If there are 50 there, I won't wipe them out. What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about if there's only 10 there, will you wipe them all out? No, says God, I won't wipe them out. And then Abraham stops and he said, you know, I know the Lord of all the earth, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And so these are the four things, I think, important things that we might draw from Scripture of how we can walk with God to love him, to trust him, to obey him and to commune with him. And of course, we can't find Adam these days. He's died. We can't find Enoch either because he was taken away. How can we find a way to God? How can we learn to love, trust, obey 
and talk with God as Enoch did. We realise that we're not disciplined enough. We're not strong enough against the world, the flesh and the devil. How is it possible to ever truly walk with God? Well, in truth, we will struggle to do it. In truth, in our own strength, we'll, we'll find it extremely difficult. And even in Enoch's days, those men there who had access to Adam and, and, and God was, was obviously there talking with, with people like Enoch, we realise that it'll be very difficult. But we can look to God and we can understand what God's revealed. And way back, some 800 years before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah said, that the one he he spoke about, Jesus, he will not fail nor be discouraged. And the reason that Jesus didn't fail, because unlike Adam, he never worked from his own individual perspective, but always from the standpoint of the Father. And we have to learn to do the same. And then we see what Jesus did for us. We see what God did for us. He came amongst us and lived the perfect life and died the death that we deserve so that we can live, so that we can walk with God, that God would put his spirit in man. And so the writer to the Hebrews says, we have one who was tempted in every way but did not sin. He understands our weakness. And John, the writer of the gospel, wrote, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, but Jesus, God's Son, reveals him to us. John says, God so loved that he gave his Son that we may walk with God and have eternal life. And that's the possibility any one of us can miss. A possibility of fellowship with God continually. Regardless of the sufferings, regardless of the monotony, regardless of the pressures, that's the possibility Jesus wants us to have. I am come, says Jesus, that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word.